Uh, good morning, everybody, and welcome from London uh, to this week's uh, Keeping an Eye on the Geopolitical Ball with me, Jamie Shea, at Se a Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe. Well, uh, last week, the European Commission published its AVI uh, on the way ahead uh, for the next round of EU uh, enlargement. Um, it recommended that the European Council, in other words, the heads of state and government of the EU, meeting in Brussels next month, uh, should uh, go ahead uh, to open uh, membership negotiations with uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia uh, and Bosnia-Herzegovina, and also continue uh, those uh, negotiations with all of the existing uh, candidates, uh, including Turkey, uh, which is still on the list. Uh, despite the uh, behaviour of President Erdogan of late, uh, which has certainly not been in a direction consistent with EU priorities uh, and uh, values. Uh, this uh, Commission uh, AVI, or opinion, uh, is not without controversy. I think most people were expecting a recommendation to open talks with Ukraine, because, of course, keeping uh, morale high in Ukraine, supporting President Zelensky's government, pushing ahead with reform, notwithstanding wartime uh, conditions, is, of course, uh, a an EU priority, but there certainly will be a debate regarding Georgia, which clearly has not met the conditions set down uh, by the EU uh, to open membership uh, negotiations, and Bosnia, which instead of going forward seems to be going backwards uh, as part of Bosnia, the Republic of Serbska, led by Milorad Dodic, moves closer to uh, Russia uh, and defies increasingly uh, the country's uh, constitution. But what does it all mean? Well, it means that now the EU has uh, recognised 10 more countries as, as possible uh, future uh, members. Uh, Charlie Michel, the EU Council President, even suggested a few weeks back that the first uh, new members could uh, enter as early as 2030, which seems incredibly ambitious given that we're about to enter 2024. Uh, and if you're going to have a country entering by 2030, the uh, membership uh, negotiations allowing time for ratification have to be wrapped up by the beginning of 2028 at the very least, which would leave us only uh, four years to get through uh, 35 uh, chapters for enlargement and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, uh, of uh, legal and institutional uh, uh, reforms. Now, some of you may say, well, OK, Jamie, but why is this such a big deal? Uh, the EU has always been enlarging, moving from the original six uh, at the end of the 1950s uh, to 27 uh, today. Uh, the first uh, uh, enlargement was with the UK, Denmark, Ireland in 1973. And then over the next couple of decades, we went all the way through Greece, Spain, Austria, Sweden, Finland. The Big Bang of 2004, when 20 com uh, 10 countries, excuse me, notably from Central and Eastern Europe, uh, joined. Then on to Romania and Bulgaria in 2007, and the latest Croatia in uh, 2013. And indeed, uh, along the way, there were things that might have been. Uh, for instance, Norway with two referenda uh, voting not to join the EU. Iceland uh, being interested and then backing off again. And uh, the EU in Thessaloniki in 2002, giving a kind of promise to all of the countries of the Western Balkans that they could be considered as EU candidates. But nonetheless, uh, until a few uh, months ago, there was a sense that the next enlargement would not probably take place for many, many decades. A feeling of fatigue had gripped EU citizens 
uh, particularly with many of the new members not really being ready uh, for EU membership. Even old ones like Greece are uh, cooking the books when it came to uh, its uh, budget deficits in order to join the euro and then getting into deep trouble uh, and having to be bailed out by the IMF and the EU institutions. In fact, Brexit uh, was around a long time before we had uh, Brexit. Uh, I sense that in Eastern Europe there were still issues with corruption, with uh, bad banking uh, uh, rules, uh, uh, dirty money flowing through Russian, enduring Russian influence in uh, these countries uh, too, uh, a lack of uh, uh, progress on privatization and winding down old Soviet-style industries and, and, and all of the uh, uh, rest. Um, and so we had a situation where along the way, certain countries like France, Denmark, uh, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Ireland uh, voted against uh, 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 either uh, EU treaties or in the case of the Dutch, even a comprehensive trade agreement with Ukraine to show their displeasure that Brussels seemed to be concentrating more on the interests of non-members than on the existing EU citizens uh, themselves. There were also doubts that any new round of EU enlargement pushing the, the block out to nearly 40 members uh, would make it less functional in terms of voting rights, you know, endless arguments over the share out of regional funds, structural funds, uh, uh, reimbursements to farmers under the common agricultural policy. Would every member state have its own commission? And how would you divide up the portfolio among 40 different commissioners and so on and so forth. And, and indeed, even today, um, that, that sense of uh, uh, of the new members uh, diluting the prosperity of existing members is still there. Polish farmers were blockading the imports of Ukrainian grain uh, because that depressed local prices. And Polish truckers uh, just a couple of days ago were blocking three borders between Poland and Ukraine because of cheaper Ukrainian truckers uh, entering uh, their particular uh, market. This uh, made the former uh, EU Commission president, uh, Jean-Pierre Juncker, uh, declare that there should be a pause for at least uh, five years. And President Macron was on record for a long time saying that basically we should have a deepening of the EU to make it more coherent, uh, better integrated politically and economically, particularly in foreign and defence policy, before we contemplated a further widening. But of course, the war in Ukraine, as everybody will know, has changed all of that 180 uh, degrees and made even France now an advocate of this next big bang of EU enlargement. Well, why is this? Well, the war in Ukraine, of course, has put very much the focus on freedom, European values, the European way of life, uh, and of course, the much uh, harsher geostrategic environment in which we now live, meaning that uh, the EU has got to provide not only prosperity for its uh, citizens, but increasingly defend them against external security threats as well. So there's been a, a clear sense that to allow a grey zone between the EU and Russia uh, with a number of weak and unstable states, like in the 1930s in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, would only uh, ex accelerate geostrategic competition with Russia and, and endanger the EU's own uh, eastern uh, uh, borders. So bring all of the EU aspirants uh, inside the tent. A strong EU is going to be an EU better able to defend its interests. Um, that is uh, undoubtedly uh, one reason. The second thing is the sense that if these states remain in a kind of Dante limbo, 
uh, uh, not knowing if they're moving west or if they're moving east. Not only would this encourage Russian imperial ambition and endanger EU countries themselves in the long run, but it will mean that they will go backwards rather than forwards. In other words, as Jacques Delors famously said, a bicycle cannot stand still. Uh, if that happens, you're going to uh, uh, fall off. So as the EU then bites the bullet uh, and goes ahead um, in wartime, that's never happened before, in a much more demanding geostrategic environment where Russia is going to actively oppose EU enlargement and do everything it can to undermine it uh, and to stir up populism uh, in Europe and push citizens against the idea of taking in countries like Ukraine. What are the specific challenges that the EU is going to have to face up to? Well, none. the first one is to recognise this is going to take time. Uh, this is not going to be as fast as previous rounds of enlargement. We're dealing with poorer countries, countries at war, countries which need a lot of investment, a lot of reconstruction, countries which have big problems with corruption, the rule of law, and, and so on. So getting them up to the EU standards is going to take time, and we're going to have to sustain our energy and motivation, and also the energy and motivation of the candidate countries over a uh, long period. Secondly, the EU has got to function during that period. Again, if we give the voters the impression that we're spending 50% of our time focusing on the interests of non-EU citizens, no matter how worthy, rather than dealing with the problems that EU citizens feel every day, security, uh, mass uh, illegal migration, uh, at least a perception uh, of that, uh, inflation, higher energy costs, uh, and all of the rest, uh, then that public support will simply not be forthcoming. It's it's fragile already. So the EU has got to, to use a phrase of President Lyndon Johnson, learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. Number three, we have to sort of keep the candidates motivated for this very long haul by offering them progressive integration, a new concept. In other words, giving them many of the benefits of EU membership uh, in advance of actual membership as they meet important milestones. Uh, for example, conclusion of certain uh, chapters or meeting uh, other uh, conditions and, and so on. This will show that, the, that despite the slow pace, Progress is nonetheless being made, uh, that they are getting benefits uh, uh, commensurate with their efforts. Um, uh, in other words, the donkey gets to eat the carrot uh, uh, and therefore is motivated to continue. But again, it's not going to be easy for the EU to judge at what stage of progress of the candidate countries. These forms of progressive integration, political consultations, defence cooperation, uh, visas, uh, access to the single market, uh, additional regional structural funds uh, will be uh, granted. The next condition is to balance the technical with the political side. Uh, EU membership is a very technical issue. I mentioned earlier the millions or at least hundreds of thousands of legal documents that have to be concluded uh, and which are non-negotiable because this is the acquis communautaire, the sum total of everything that's gone before that new member states need to sign up to. Uh, but there's also a political side to this as well, particularly, for example, new member countries supporting EU foreign policy uh, initiative. So balancing the technical with the political is going to be important as well. It can't just be a political exercise. The countries have to meet the standards, but it can't just be a technical exercise either. This is for geostrategic reasons. So political harmonization has to go in lockstep. Uh, the next thing is to make sure that the new candidates apply the standards rigorously. 
Um, as a former EU commissioner said at one of our meetings of Friends of Europe recently, uh, in the past, it was largely a box ticking exercise with the EU commission not really verifying very deeply that a country, apart from adopting a new law, was actually implementing that law and following EU standards. So we need uh, a much better uh, form of verification this time round. We need, of course, also to be honest with those countries maybe Turkey, maybe Serbia, that clearly are not, despite the passage of years, moving closer to EU standards, but in many cases away. Uh, so if certain countries advance, uh, we also have to be honest about those countries that backslide and maybe do not qualify uh, for EU membership and then offer them an alternative uh, instead. Uh, and we need to make uh, uh, public opinion supportive by showing them that there are benefits to them uh, and not only to the new member states. Of course, it's going to be easier with the new member states because they'll see the economic benefits immediately, uh, new airports, new roads, etc. Um, the benefits for our own citizens are more in terms of values and a stronger EU, less tangible things. So it's going to be a harder sell, but we need to think hard about how we do that. So in the end, uh, this is going to be probably the biggest challenge in the history of the EU. And the greatest challenge of all is to make sure that when we come out of it uh, in a couple of decades with 35 going on to 40 members of the EU, despite all of these large numbers and a much greater geographic, geographical expanse, somehow the EU emerges stronger on the international scene in terms of uh, its relations with North America, uh, with China, with Russia, its capacity to defend its interests on a global stage and not weaker. Because bigger may sound like weaker, how do we make sure that bigger equals stronger? So to uh, paraphrase uh, uh, a, a musical, which is happening just next door to me in London at the moment, Mamma Mia, here we go again. Here we go again. Uh, but this time it's not going to be business as usual, and it's going to require a great deal of inspirational EU leadership. Thank you for listening. Look forward to engaging with you very soon.